3: Oh hi, hello, and welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I'm your host, she who loves a Greek play more than just about anything, Liv. Today's episode is for everyone who listens to this series from the beginning, and when they hit the Oedipus episodes, they finish those and they hear me talk about doing Antigone next, only for that to not happen. Yeah, I hear your cries of anguish that somehow, somehow... In the five years of this series, where I do incredibly deep dives into so many plays, including some pretty damn obscure ones, at least comparatively, somehow, somehow, I have not yet ever actually covered Sophocles' Antigone, i.e. one of the most famous plays, certainly one of the most talked about plays, and almost definitely the singular play that ever gets called Feminist. Today's episode, or rather, probably at least the next three episodes, are for you people. And I mean, they're also for Antigone. God knows, she deserved better. Now, originally, I was going to start a retelling series again on Oedipus today, thinking I, I really hadn't done that man justice in those earliest episodes. I still think that's true, but starting Oedipus now, I'd only be giving you a story that I've already told before, but I'd also be opening up a series where I'd want to do at least three episodes on Oedipus and then at least three episodes on Antigone. And gods, we don't have that kind of time! I have too many other exciting things in the pipeline, not least being the new Sparta series that I'm working on, and I'm really excited for you all to listen to that. So, no, today we're just getting into Antigone, though I will give you enough of a recap to remind you all what it was that happened. (laughs) in that oracular tragedy of Oedipus Tyrannos. If I can call it an oracular tragedy, which I would like to. One thing that's occurred to me as I work on this episode, too, is that, well, people um, have some really high expectations when it comes to Antigone. People talk about this play like it's almost the only Greek tragedy that matters, that it's the most important, most impactful, etc., etc., and like, I get it. Speaking truth to power, it's a thing that matters to us and certainly matters to me. Obviously, it's also great that it's a woman doing that, particularly in ancient Greek literature. But I, I don't know, I don't think I feel the same way about this play. And now I'm just kind of realizing how much of a minefield it is. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, I guess don't take this interpretation as the be all and end all of Antigone. I'm not going to present it like it's the greatest ever piece of Greek tragedy, because I have different priorities when it comes to my appreciation of these works, and those priorities just don't put Antigone at the top. Is she important? Yes. Meaningful? Yes. Awesome? Absolutely. Just, I don't know, not like the best of them, I guess. I'm really hyping myself up, aren't I? I really, I'm just getting ready for all the men who think their love of Antigone means they're good feminists, and therefore, if I don't treat it like the most important play, I, I'm the one in the wrong. So dudes, keep it to yourself, I guess, and just let me do this my way. (laughs) Now, frankly, that's enough bizarre and contradictory introduction out of the way. But hey, it's Antigone. This is going to be quite the series, (laughs) so we better get into it. Antigone, Antigone, Antigone. So many people's favorite play, and it's the one that's taken me five years of obsessive research into Greek myth and tragedy to finally get around to? This is episode 188, Everyone's Favorite Feminist, Sophocles' Antigone, Part 1. i knew what i was doing when i named this episode but i also like i know i'm not going to talk about it much in today's episode because we've got to get a bit deeper before we can really wrap our heads around this idea this this feminist concept when it comes to antigone still it seemed like the only way to go when naming this first episode plus I like to cause trouble. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As I said, before we get too deep into Sophocles' play, Antigone, we must remind ourselves what started it all. The tragedies in the House of Thebes. Everything that leads up to Antigone's time to shine. Now bear with me, I don't have time to reread all of Oedipus Tyrannos in order to give you this recap. I wish I did because it's an amazing play, but we'll just have to make do with a simple description of events. Oedipus is a baby born in the city of Thebes to his parents, Laius and Jocasta. It's prophesied and learned by Laius that his child will one day kill him. So as is always the case with such prophecies, Laius attempts to circumvent this eventuality by, (laughs) well, (laughs) he has the baby's ankles pinned together so that they can't crawl away and and then he has him exposed, uh, left on a hilltop to die by the elements or animals. Always a good way to start a story, right? As you might remember, the baby is then found by a shepherd. Or maybe the servant who brought the baby to be exposed took pity and gave him to the shepherd. Either way, the baby ends up in the care of this shepherd, who lives in Corinth, and who gives the child the name Oedipus, which means swollen foot. The baby grows up, and eventually he too learns of a prophecy about his future. He's destined to kill his father and marry his mother! less than ideal, and so Oedipus flees Corinth in an attempt, just like his father before him, to circumvent this prophecy. But along his journey, he encounters a bit of a road rage incident and ends up killing a man who is later revealed to be, yes, his own father. Oedipus then, without having any idea that this is the case, ends up falling in love with the recently widowed queen of Thebes, Jocasta, and marrying her. They have four children, two sons, Ateocles and Polynices, and two daughters, Antigone and Desmene. And well, Jocasta is eventually revealed to be his mother. Just saying this all out loud makes me really want to revisit this play. Like, I'm already regretting that I'm not doing it today, but I will in the future, I promise. I learned so much about the historical context, the myth themselves, the oracle, that I just want to talk about this forever. But most importantly, I want to emphasize that in the play, this, that is, like, the sources that survived to us today, like... No one knows about these familial relations, not subconsciously or consciously. They don't know. It's a tragedy not because half the characters die. It's a tragedy because a man and woman who love each other deeply, who've built a family and raised children to teenagehood, this couple that's been living happily for probably 15 to 20 years, they find out their mother and son Like, that is the tragedy, and it's horrifying and sad, but it's not about the incest, for once. It's about the experience of finding out that not only is your entire life and family a lie, but it's one that you cannot continue living, because you're breaking the laws of human nature. And so, the only solution for Jocasta, when she learns, at least as she sees it, is to kill herself, and for Oedipus, it's to blind himself when he then finds her, and then he learns the truth ugh. So just ignore everything Freud ever said. Like, hell, ignore half my own complaints when I told this story originally. Things like Oedipus should have realized that the, the family he had in Corinth wasn't his own because there was a rumor and that maybe he was making things worse for himself by leaving. Like, all of it works. Like, all of it fits. And all of it is just sad. And, well, supremely wild and interesting along the way. But regardless, like, Oedipus gets no blame for marrying his mother and Jocasta gets no blame for marrying her son. It's only tragedy. And so when all of this has come out, imagine then being their children. After Oedipus's death, the kingdom of Thebes passed to his two sons, Ateocles and Polymichus. They made a deal where they would take turns ruling, but that soured and caused a war, made famous by Aeschylus' play The Seven Against Thebes, I also covered a lot of it through Euripides' play, The Phoenician Women. So listen back to that if you're curious about the causes in the war itself. They're all kind of working off the same mythological tradition that we don't have, but we have their plays. For today, what we care about is this. Both brothers are left dead after this war. Polynices was the one who attacked Thebes with the help of the Argives. And because of that, the man who is in charge after both of their deaths... Creon decides that he will not be, he being polynices will not be permitted to be buried. That's his punishment for attacking Thebes because his brother pulled out of the deal where Polynices would also be king. And that is where we find ourselves when Sophocles' Antigone begins. While the Antigone is often seen as the final play in a trilogy by Sophocles, with the first two being Oedipus Tyrannos and Oedipus at Colonus, it's most likely that Antigone was actually written first. Regardless of the order, though, this is not an official trilogy, or at least it it wasn't in the ancient world. The only official trilogy from the ancient world that actually survives, and by official I mean like was performed as a trilogy when it was written, is the Oresteia by Aeschylus. Another series that I really want to revisit before long. Still, now these three plays, the two Oedipus plays and Antigone, they're often seen as a trilogy or performed now as a trilogy. But in fact, it does seem like Antigone came first. She was Sophocles' starting point, And then he revisited her family's past after he'd already written about her. It's not every day that a woman became quite so famous in ancient texts, so I'm making sure to give Antigone her due. Also, a quick note on what I've called the first play in the chronology, Oedipus Tyrannos. That's the Greek name. Oedipus Rex is Latin, and Oedipus the King is a literal English translation. I think the name Oedipus Rex gets a bit too much airtime, hence my need to point this out. Plus, Tyrannos is like just such a good word, and it so is specifically used here. I know this episode is about Antigone, but I I am me. And thus, so the use of the word Tyrannos is specific. It means king, but it means king in a negative sense, or at least more negative than the other word for king in ancient Greek, Basileus. Tyrannos is a king who seized power versus being born into it or inheriting it like a Basileus. Technically speaking, Oedipus is a Basileus because he was always meant to be king based on birthright, but since he technically seized power from Laius after killing a man he later learns is his father, that also makes him a Tyrannos. It's just interesting. Anyway, uh, but I I promise I, I am here to talk about Antigone. My dear heart... Is Mene more than blood, sister? Is there even one thing from the evils of Oedipus that Zeus doesn't inflict on the two of us still living? There is no pain or disaster, shame or dishonor that I have not seen among these evils of yours and mine." Those are the first lines of Sophocles' Antigone, spoken, as you might have assumed, by Antigone and to her sister Ismene. Antigone goes on to ask if Ismene has heard what's now been decreed by their uncle Creon, the new ruler of Thebes. Ismene, though, hasn't heard anything since their two brothers were killed, each by one another, in the battle. The Argive army has left Thebes alone, since their Theban leader had been killed, and now Thebes is left to deal with the aftermath. Thebes is left with their two princes, or kings, Aetheocles and Polynices, each having killed his own brother. Their uncle left to rule, and these two sisters, the only two left from the royal family, just watching as their brothers killed each other not too long after their mother killed herself, after the revelation about their family, and then their father, who they've learned is also their half-brother, died even more recently. Essentially, they've lost their entire family over what amounts to probably maybe two years, if not less. And now Creon has decreed that their brother, Polynices won't be allowed to be buried in Thebes, or at all. So, Antigone has announced to the audience and to Ismene the crux of this play. Not only are they not permitted to bury their brother, but they're not even allowed to mourn him. Antigone tells Ismene that, Well, hasn't Creon honored one of our brothers with proper rights while refusing the other burial? Now, burial practices in ancient Greece were very, very important. Even the poorest people were entitled to an honorable burial. Even enslaved people were given that right. So to deny it not only to a man of thieves, but to one of the princes of the city is a huge insult. Not only to Polynices himself, but to the gods, to his family, to tradition broadly. So, Antigone continues, it isn't just that Creon is decreeing that Polynices won't be buried and will instead be left to rot, but anyone who tries to bury him or mourn him will be killed, publicly, stoned to death by the people of the city. Antigone finishes her speech to Ismene by saying that essentially... Now is the time for Izmini to prove herself, that it's the time to see what she does in such a situation. Will she help her sister or work against her? Honestly, it feels to me like Antigone is starting this out the wrong way. Like, maybe tell your sister what your plan is before straight up pitting her against you. Like, you're a bad sister if you don't help me with this, but I haven't actually told you what it is. But then I've always thought Antigone was a hint over the top. But I'm trying to be kind. We're coming at this with an open mind to understand Antigone. But that is how she first speaks to Ismini about what she has planned. To which Ismene rightly replies asking, What are you proposing? Is it something dangerous? So Antigone clarifies. She's planning to bury their brother and she wants Ismene's help. She wants her sister's help in carrying his body. Antigone is harsh to Ismene, further, <laughs> telling her that it's it's what they have to do, that they can't abandon their brother now. Which I understand, she wants to do what's right. But Ismene has a good counterpoint, too. She reminds Antigone of everything I just reminded you all. All the tragedy in their family, how they're the only two left, and, and what happens if they die too, punished for breaking this law. No matter how much the act of burying their brother might feel like the right thing to do they will be submitting themselves to death. That said, Ismini then points out that as women, they are not meant to wage war with men. That, quote, "'Since we are ruled by those more powerful, we must obey now, and in yet more painful ways.'" Ismene, it seems, has unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, drank the patriarchal Kool-Aid. No matter how much I also want to feel for her and to see where she's coming from— And she is coming from a place of of honesty of her situation and what life is like for women. It's obvious she's in deep. In this world where they don't have any power, nor do they seem to have a means of seizing power, or can they even see that as a possibility? Antigone is kind enough to Ismene once she's heard this reply. She gets it, understands where Ismene is coming from. After all, they're both young women who have been brought into this world, raised to understand their role in the way that Ismene does. That they are there to watch us men handle these sorts of things. It isn't their role or their place. (sighs) But Antigone makes clear, if Ismene changes her mind, she won't be welcomed later. It's now or never. She states that regardless of whether Ismene helps, she will bury their brother, even if it means that she too will die, but she will consider it a noble death. In the end, she knows she made the right decision, that she did what was right for Polynices and for the gods themselves. Ismene briefly tries to convince Antigone not to do it, but she knows there's no point. Instead, she suggests that they keep it quiet, keep it secret. But even that, Antigone doesn't want she wants it public and loud what she plans to do. She even tells Ismini to spread the word Quote, Call it out. Your silence will earn you far more hatred than if you proclaim it aloud. To which Ismini replies beautifully Quote, You have a hot heart for cold matters. Ugh, what an amazing line. The two sisters continue on like this. One can't convince the other, and in the end, Antigone will hate Ismene for her decision, for not helping, for choosing to toe the line and to be the type of woman that she's expected to be. It's hard to side with either one of them. It's a mess all around, but Antigone is comfortable in her decision. She will die for this, because living with the alternative is worse. And with that, the two leave the stage, opening it up for the chorus to sing of Thebes and all of its tragedy. So the chorus sings of what's happened, of Polynices who waged war on his own city, quote, That man, a screaming eagle soaring over the land with wings of white snow, one among the many armed warriors in crested helmets of horsehair. They sing of the war fought, brother against brother, how it set the very walls of Thebes on fire. They are not kind to Polynices in their telling of what happened, and I don't blame them. He may have felt he had good reason, but he was still a Theban prince who teamed up with a foreign city to wage war against his home and his brother. All it brought was more tragedy and bloodshed to a city that had already seen in more than enough. They sing of the brothers' deaths, each at the hands of the other and the Thebans' victory even in the face of that loss. They call for Thebes to forget the war they've just won and instead go to the temples of the gods and celebrate all night long. Quote, And may Theban Dionysus, Earth Shaker, lead the way. Ah, Thank the gods for Bacchus, Dionysus, that Theban god who is so interestingly called Earthshaker here when that epithet is usually used for Poseidon. But I suppose when it comes to Dionysus, he's shaking the earth with frenzy rather than earthquakes. I love a celebration so rowdy and full of wine that the earth itself shakes from the force of it.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor!
1: Gene, we'll boot it!
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
3: So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar runs the business. I understand now, it's a wise man who marries a wiser woman.
2: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The chorus ends their song by welcoming Creon on stage, the new ruler of their city, he may have gotten the job through tragedy, but still, he is the one who has it now. And so Creon speaks to this chorus of Theban elders. All men. This isn't a Euripides' play, after all. He speaks to the men and he explains how he's come to power, once again reminding them of polyneices and Antiochus' death, it's very political, this speech. It screams statesman, politician trying to maintain his power, convince the ruling class that they support him, even if they may have had nothing to do with installing him in his role. He's speaking like he knows what he's doing, like he isn't in the midst of angering the gods through his decision. He says, quote, Let all seeing Zeus be my witness, I would not wait silently, watching ruin rather than deliverance advance on the city. Creon goes on, continuing his speech to this chorus of old men, on and on, talking about the fate of Thebes and how he has the city's best interests at heart, how his laws will only serve to strengthen Thebes, keep them safe for the future. Like, I'm reading this and I'm getting, I'm getting West Wing vibes, but West Wing, once you're fully aware of just how broken the American political system is, you know, like, like you're a hardcore lefty watching West Wing for the first time since you were younger, like more when you were more naive. Maybe, maybe you get to that 9-11 episode. Is literally anyone getting what I mean here? Anyway, that that's what I'm hearing Uh, when I read uh, Creon's words. He has a lot to say about Polyniques specifically, that when he brought the Argives to Thebes, he was seeking to destroy the city entirely. Set it on fire, both metaphorically and literally. That he wanted to destroy his family's gods. That he wanted all Thebans enslaved. He paints Polynikes as a villain. A true and complete villain who wanted death and destruction and only that. It's difficult to say what kind of judgment is actually being passed on the situation, and and just how much of it is about Creon here. He certainly isn't the hero of this play. Still, I feel the need to defend Polynices a bit. Both he and his brother had claim to the throne in Thebes. They made an agreement to share the kingship, and Ateocles backed out, essentially forcing his brother into exile. War probably wasn't the greatest answer, but it isn't difficult to see why Polynices was angry, why he was lashing out against his homeland. Regardless, this is our introduction to Creon and to his take on Polynices. Before he goes on to remind the chorus what we've already heard from Antigone. Quote, It has been proclaimed throughout the city that no one honour him with burial or mourning, but leave him unburied, a corpse devoured by birds and dogs, foul to see. And so once more, we're reminded of the stakes, but also of Creon's intense and all encompassing anger. This is all out of anger. It isn't rational, it isn't the will of the gods, and in fact, is pretty explicitly against the will of the gods, but Creon can't see that. The ancient Greeks buried their dead. They gave them proper burials and mourned them. It's what they did. It's tradition and tradition is important. So not only is Creon going against this established and important tradition, but he's doing so publicly, forcing Polyniques to rot for everyone to see. And from a completely logistical standpoint, it's also a dangerous decision he's made. He is inviting disease, pestilence into his people by allowing a body to rot out in the open. This is made even more powerful when we remember the catalyst for Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos. The first part of this story, there's a plague in Thebes and it's tearing apart the city. Creon is there for that, and now he's essentially asking for another rather than allowing this man to be buried in his homeland where he was born, where his family lived and died. Creon finishes this speech by saying that he will never permit the evil to surpass justice, making clear that in his mind one brother was evil and the other was good. But it's the last lines that really emphasize the creon of this play, his role. Quote, But whoever thinks well of the state will be honored by me, dead or alive. Whoever thinks well of the state... Did I intentionally release this episode so close to the American midterm elections? (laughs) Absolutely not. I'm Canadian, and thus my life does not revolve around them. But the impact is not lost on me. I'm writing this uh, before those elections take place, though. I'll say that right now. And no, this is not an opportunity for you to come at me for using the word American to describe people from the United States. Take up your argument with the English language. With these words, this reverence for the state, and disgust with anyone who might go against the will of the state, Creon finishes speaking to the chorus, finishes his opening monologue, our very introduction to him as a character. We are now very, very clear what role he is playing. He is a company man through and through. The chorus confirms to Creon that it is well within his rights as this new leader to impose these rules, But when he notes to them that it's now up to them to watch over these laws, they ask that the task be given to someone younger. But no, Creon insists. There are already guards watching over Polynices's body, ensuring that no one bury him, no one mourn over him. So the chorus wants clarity then. Well, if that's the case, what do you want from us? He wants them to confirm they will not work with anyone who seeks to go around him, to circumvent his decree, to do what he has outlawed. To which they answer, quote, No one is such a fool as to love death. Moments after the chorus confirms their feelings on this situation that they understand the act of burying Polynices is against the will of Creon and is the same as asking for death. A guard runs on stage. And, oh, we love a messenger, which is what he is serving as here, running on stage in a Greek tragedy. It means something exciting has happened off stage and that we are about to hear about it. The guard is breathless and panicked. He's run there as fast as he could, and he tells Creon, but he's worried. His insides are telling him that he will be punished for sharing this news, that he will be blamed for what he has to say. But the other part of him says that punishment will come if he doesn't share this news, and he rambles, honestly. It's very real and very human, the true response to having information that you know you should share, but you don't know what's going to happen to you if you do. But in the end, Creon gets it all out of him. The guard explains, once he's as certain as he can be, that he won't be punished for what he's about to reveal. He says, quote, I'll tell you. Someone just now buried the corpse and left, after sprinkling thirsty dust on its skin and performing the sacred rites as required. What did you say? What man would dare? Creon replied, and... Can't you just picture his tone, his fury, his disbelief that someone, some man, would disobey his rule so completely? And so soon after it was made, I mean, I can feel his anger. But the guard doesn't know. He saw no evidence that someone had come and actually done it. There were no markings on the earth, no sign of disturbance, no evidence at all. No, he says, Polynices hasn't been buried in the earth itself. Instead, it seems just a dusting of earth had been put on his corpse, quote, enough to avoid pollution, just enough that some care had been taken, some act of burial to appease the gods, just enough to have broken Creon's laws. Oh nerds, thank you so much for listening, as always. Now I said at the top, but I wanted to make a point of naming this episode about Antigone's feminism because this is something that comes up often and I I have a lot of thoughts about it. A lot of thoughts about her as a character. She's often, and I mean often, treated as a symbol of feminism, a, a strong woman in Greek literature, the strongest even. And while it's too early to dive too deep into this... We haven't witnessed Antigone's strength yet, which is there, don't get me wrong. But it will become clear and it will become something really fascinating to explore with some nuance. For now, she's everyone's favorite feminist. (laughs) But over the next episodes, we will look at why and, and what that means. For now, one of the fascinating things about Thebes, and something that will come up when I share the conversation I had with Thebes expert Michael Furman, a conversation that will come soon, is how little writing we have from Thebes versus how much Athenian tragedians used Thebes as a kind of foil. By setting so many stories in Thebes, the Athenians could not only examine topics from Theban mythology, which is just a treasure trove of all the most famous characters, but they could also play with right and wrong, what is and is not acceptable for a leader or a city to do without passing any judgment on their own city. Thebes was close to Athens while still being far enough away that they were rarely allies and, and so they could use that city as a kind of playground for darker themes and crimes. Things like incestuous marriage <laughs> that the audience is actually meant to sympathize with or or this decision not to bury someone as important as Polynices. They would never set those kinds of stories in Athens. It, it would make the city look bad. Not to mention Thebes has so much more broader mythology associated with it. Or like mythology that's whose importance went far beyond Thebes. Whereas Athenian mythology is pretty centered in Athens. It's like comparing Cadmus to Erecthonius. One is far, far more famous and has way more sourcing and stories, let alone comparing like Heracles to Theseus. <laughs> One is better than the other. <laughs> So we have so much written about Thebes, but almost nothing written from Thebes. Like These are Athenians telling Theban stories, and that means they are putting their own Athenian tr- traditions and, and thoughts and feelings on a city that they are not necessarily friends with. Whereas we, we have Theban history, archaeological and otherwise, but we don't have their stories from their mouths. Even the epics that we know existed about Thebes are lost anyway yeah, I, lo- I love thebes it's fascinating and weird and full of all of the best mythological characters like that is a fact but as always let's finish this episode with a five-star review by one of you amazing listeners uh, please consider leaving me a five-star review to both offset the people who have no idea what they're talking about and or think the patriarchy isn't real <laughs> and uh well also just make me really happy because reading your reviews makes me very happy this one is from someone called B B W, from the US. This is amazing. I just can't. She is so amazing. And if you see this, just know I love you so much. Oh, thanks. Uh, you are so calming and entertaining. And I can listen whenever and wherever. You make myths so entertaining. You make me want to read all the books about myths. A great book for you is I Am Arachne by I, I don't remember. But yeah, I just want you to know that you keep that you keep me going and it's so nice and you're such a good reader and your voice and input is so entertaining keep up the great work and then there are like a bazillion emoji and this one I didn't read it beforehand I just like was like this is nice and these are emoji are funny so I'm gonna copy it into my script um uh, so that was the first and it was great and I thank you to this person so much you're the best Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research, and oh my god, it's just so much. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Oh my god, she is also indispensable. The podcast is hosted and monetized by ACAST. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com mythsbaby or click on the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I fucking love Theban mythology. I just uh, wish we had some of it from, like, Thebes, you know? <laughs>
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it!
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
3: So you write the books, Gene, and time on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man Marie marries a wiser woman.